Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, May 30th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A. Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. In addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can now listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December 2018, we have highlighted over 115 poets living in 13 countries on five continents. And we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can do that by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate either via PayPal or your preferred credit cards. Today, our episode will highlight my conversation with Anna Flores, with whom I discussed her poem, Mexicans Are Such Hard Workers, and my poem, Erosion. Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of May 31st. On Monday, May 31st, from 8.15 p.m. Amsterdam time, Labyrinth will be hosting their weekly open mic. You can find out more information at labyrinthamsterdam.nl forward slash pound sign events. Again, that's labyrinthamsterdam.nl forward slash pound sign events. From 8 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground We Play Clean open mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore Again, that's at poets underscore playground underscore. From 7 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, the Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting the Loop Writing Workshop with Carol Scott. You can find out more information at Los Angeles Poets Society on Instagram. Again, that's at Los Angeles Poets Society on Instagram. On Tuesday, June 1st, from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting their first draft open mic for those between the ages of 13 and 23. It's a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. You can find out more information and register at urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. Again, that's urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. From 9 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting their Poets Playground We Play Dirty open mic, again via Instagram Live, at poets underscore playground underscore. From Wednesday, June 2nd to Sunday, June 6th, Paris Lit Up will be hosting the Dive-In number three, this time benefiting Frank Water. You can find out more information at parislitup.com forward slash projects. Again, that's parislitup.com forward slash projects. From 6 p.m. Amsterdam time, Word Up Amsterdam will be hosting their Inspiration Factory writing workshop by Janice. You can find out more information and register at wordupamsterdam.weebly.com forward slash workshops.html. Again, that's wordupamsterdam.weebly.com or slash workshops.html. From 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Do More Baltimore will be hosting their World Tour Poetry Club. You can find out more information at domorebaltimore.org or slash workshop events. Again, that's at domorebaltimore.org or slash workshops events. Do is spelled D-E-W. From 8 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Beyond Baroque Literary Arts will be hosting their poetry workshop with Louis Verresto. You can find out more information at beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops.html. Again, that's at beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops.html. On Thursday, June 3rd, from 9 p.m. Paris time, Paris Lit Up will be hosting their weekly open mic. You can find out more information at parislitup.com forward slash open hyphen mic. Again, that's at parislitup.com forward slash open hyphen mic. 
from 7 to 9 p.m. Central Daylight Time, True R Speaks will be hosting their Reverb Open Mic, hosted by Lieutenant Sumi. You can find out more information at trueartspeaks.org/events. Again, that's at trueartspeaks.org/events. From 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Dryland Literary Journal, LA. Will be hosting their future now reading and open mic, featuring Carl Scott, Hao Lingxu, and Timothy Gomez. You can find out more information at Dryland Lit LA on Instagram. Again, that's at Dryland Lit LA on Instagram. From 7 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, the Los Angeles Poet Society will be hosting their Tonali Thursdays. You can find out more information at lapoetsociety.org/events. Again, that's at lapoetsociety.org/events. On Friday, June 4th, from 11 a.m. to 12:30 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their Speak Your Truth Writing Workshop. You can find out more information by messaging their host. Andrina Liam by messaging her at survivor. Andrina. Liam. Andrina is spelled A N D R E E N A. Liam is spelled L E E A N N E. From 7 p.m. West African time, Graciano and Worm and Nepal Flower will be hosting their Corona versus Open Mic via Instagram Live. At Graciano and Warum, that's G R A C I A N O E N W E R E M. Again, that's at G R A C I A N O E N W E R E M. From 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, the Rooted Minds Blog and Bravo Pay will be hosting their Spring Poetry Contest winners feature with one single rose. Don Sean and Adrian Kazimbras via Instagram Live at Rooted Minds. Again, that's via Instagram Live at Rooted Minds. On Saturday, June 5th, from 8 to 9:30 p.m. India Standard Time, our past poet guest Mesh Mohikar will be hosting his Let's Unmesh Life Open Mic. You can find out more information at Mesh Mohikar. On Instagram, again, that's at Umesh Mohikar on Instagram. That's U N M E S H M O H I T K A R. From 2 to 4 p.m. Central Daylight Time, the Funk Magazine will be hosting their writing workshop with Chris Allen and Danny Putney. You can find out more information and register at thefunkmag.com. Again, that's at thefunkmag.com. That's D E F U N K T M A G. On Sunday, June sixth, from five to seven p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their monthly open mic. You can find out more information at Poetry LGBT on Instagram or Twitter. Again, that's at Poetry LGBT on Instagram or Twitter. From six to eight p.m. Paris time. Paris Lit Up will be hosting their monthly writers workshop. You can find out more information at parislitup.com/the-writers-workshop. Again, that's at parislitup.com/the-writers-workshop. From 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Keep the Mic On will be hosting their open mic. You can find out more information at keepthemicon.com. Again, that's at keepthemicon.com. And now let us turn to our guest poet of the week, Anna Flores. Hi, Anna. Hi. Thank you for coming onto the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a poet.、Uh, I'm a self-published author, I guess, and I do a lot of sort of community liaison work. So my poetry. To put it plainly, is usually about the border and border issues and mixed status families. I'm hoping to make a career out of it.、Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I'm studying it actively and looking for places to find space to study it, whether that means like academically or, you know, in random residencies or something like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm a, I'm a poet. I haven't really ventured into any other sort of writing creative styles. So for now, that's, uh, that's what I'm focusing on. Oh, great. I mean, you have you have some wonderful poems out. So uh, I understand you published a book. Please yeah. tell us. <laughs> I published a book in 2008, so this past year, around April, mm-hmm. and it's called Bocha Theory, mm-hmm. and it is um, about being a daughter of immigrants, but mm-hmm. a little bit further than that, it sort of uh, investigates first-generation Americans, Mexican-Americans, migrant families, mixed status families, and the way that the border sort of separates Mm. uh, families and what that does. And um, the word bocha is sort of, that was the most controversial part of the book. I had a lot of people, I actually did a, a project at South Mountain Community College Library, and I talked about the book, and there was this young man who was kind of upset at me mm-hmm. about using the word bocha because mm-hmm. it does sometimes have a negative connotation okay. meaning you refuse your heritage or you refuse where you come from but to me the way that I learned the meaning of bocha meant that you don't speak Spanish or English perfectly so oh, it's okay. sort of the the actual term like definite scientific definition is um a fruit that is discolored. So it's oh, like, yeah, okay. so it's a Brazilian, I think it's a Brazilian Latin word. Okay. Um, so imperfect. Yeah, imperfect, discolored, sort of losing itself, I guess, uh-huh. which I think is kind of what it means to me. Mm-hmm. But this man, you know, he thought pocho meant some, meant you're, you're admitting to refusing what you are. Or if somebody calls you that, it's sort of a slur, you know, and um, so we had a conversation about that. A lot of people actually had questions about what that word meant, and, mm-hmm. because in their families it was a different term, or in their families it was a sort of a an offensive term. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, that's that's sort of what the book is about. It's just about what, uh, like my nieces, for example, are also daughters of immigrants. My brother and my sister in law are not red citizens, and they live on the Mexican side of the the border mm-hmm. and I would say that they're bochas because they're studying in the English side and the American side of the border so they cross every day oh wow. yeah so okay. so there it was sort of a book for them actually you know for like the mm-hmm. next generation of bochas and sort of like a, a manuscript of what they're gonna go through and right. on the back cover actually is a picture of my niece and she's oh. like you know she's like the bocha in the next bocha theory so it it it's about that it's it's about there's no negative or positive connotation to the word for me in the book it just means you know we're we're not really tied to what our parents were tied to right yeah right yeah i mean you're basically finding your your own identity and yeah. immigration as part of it right? mm-hmm. yeah okay that's cool yeah i was wondering what that means <laughs> going back to the book is this um, the the poem that you're going to read for us today, uh, Mexicans are such hard workers. Mm-hmm. Is this a, a poem from the book? Yeah, it is. It's I think it's one of the only poems that made it from the original original manuscript. I went through a lot of editors, a lot of mentors, a lot of people read the book. A lot of people had hands in it, you know. Mm-hmm. But for the most part. Nobody touched that poem. Like, people read it and they were like, okay, this is good. Yeah. <laughs> it was only, like, me who made some decisions. I had, um, I was really lucky to be able to sit down with Alberto Rios, who's a poet laureate, I think. Of, I think he's still the poet laureate of Arizona. Okay. But he teaches at ASU. Okay. And he read this poem and he was talking to me about surrealism in poetry. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there was a line that got changed um, where I had, at the dinner table, men pick their eyes out while yeah. they eat. So that line changed into, at the dinner table, men close their eyes. And so it was a decision about, am I trying to convince people of a fantastical scene here? Am I trying to be honest, as honest to the real life truth? And so I chose not to make it a surreal image. I chose to make it a real image because the real image is just as powerful as 
you know, men plucking their eyes out. So, oh, good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I teeter, I teeter back and forth, but that's like a line that I have a lot of, I guess, instability with. Yeah. Because I guess it's like the trauma of like men crying or macho men crying. You know? Yeah, I, I want to yeah. get into that yeah. line actually because the the version that I have yeah. has the pluck their mm-hmm. eyes out. Right, so right. Why don't Why don't we have you read this poem first okay. and then we can talk about it? Did you yes. want to read the version? Of no, the I'll pluck? read the version that got published here because in the book it's the men close their eyes, but it's interesting to know that I made a decision to keep that line here for this piece that got published after I published the book. Okay. So that means I submitted this to AZ Central with the plucking eyes line. Yeah, 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 that's interesting. Yeah, so we definitely have something yes. to talk about, this surrealism. Mm-hmm. Thank you for mentioning that. Of course. It's, it's, it's really beautiful. Just so the listeners know, this is the version that was published on May 15, 2018 in uh, AZ Central. Mm-hmm. And I was going to read that for us. Thank you. Mexicans are such hard workers. I overhear my porcelain teachers clink their teeth together like a toast in celebration of their tongues, proud to be so kind. My father borrows a name so he can feed us. I dream about what he was before he was illegal, wake up with fingers broken from weaving God's hair, two braids, double trinity. In the temple, Amma and I leave our Bibles at the end of the bench near the aisle so we can find our seats every Sunday. Prayers only work if you close your eyes. I was born with my nana's lips, but this voice is mine only. It's not green, white, and red. It's not red, white, and blue. It's rain in a silver bucket. At home, the men pluck their eyes out while they eat dinner. The world would end if we saw them cry. Mexicans are such hard workers. Mexicans are such hard workers. Mexicans are workers. Mexicans work. Mexican work. Work, Mexican work. Mexicans are such hard workers. They say it like it's an honor to watch my father die. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Before we go back to the imagery, uh-huh. which is in such a short poem, it's like you presented a photo album. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you tell us what made you write this poem? Yeah, so my father and a lot of other you know, immigrant fathers um, have worked really hard jobs. So that's sort of the history of Mexican labor um, from the Bracero program to Cesar Chavez's fight. It's always sort of been the go-to identity of a Mexican man. It's how much your body is a commodity for labor, how much it can be used up for labor. That identity in of itself is still very much present, you know. And 2010, when SB 1070 passed, or even before that, before SB 1070 passed, and Jar Arpaio was, you know, um, sending out trucks to pick up illegal aliens, quote-unquote, you know, they went to Home Depot because... Mexican men were there, migrant, not all Mexican, immigrant men were there um, waiting for work. And the work that they were waiting for was hard labor mm-hmm. work that they would get paid very little for. So there's been a pattern of commodification of the Mex- of the immigrant male's body as a labor tool. And not just males, I mean, women have also mm-hmm. been used in the same way. This poem is about sort of watching my dad deteriorate because mm-hmm. of this. And so... My dad's an un- undocumented immigrant from Mexico. He has been here more than 30 years, undocumented. So he has sort of been lucky in the way that he hasn't gotten deported, you know. Mm-hmm. But I also have four brothers who have, three of them have all crossed the border at one point or another, mm-hmm. walking through the desert, and have all three at one point or another been deported or been held in a deportation facility. And all of them are labor workers. I mean, mm-hmm. they work in construction, welding, plumbing, just work that is hard and for very, very little money because the way that undocumented workers get paid is, you know, under the table. It's very, um, not all the time, but it's very cheap labor. So they get taken advantage of. Yeah, they definitely get Uh And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a language factor. There's a threat, you know, the threats that can happen. And my dad, while I was 
publishing this book, you know, he was, my dad's like 67 years old and he's worked for most of his life and he's worked very hard for most of his life and he's older. So he's not getting, he wasn't getting hired for the type of work that he could have been getting hired for when he was younger. You know, he's worked from fields to welding to construction. So those are sort of his expertises and he's an expert, you know, and what people don't realize is like these jobs are sort of looked at as unintellectual or, you know, for people who don't have skills, but he's sort of an artist, you know, he's Mm -hmm. a welder. He's been welding for a lot of his life. He can make fences. He can do all of these things that I think for anybody who is a citizen and maybe a white citizen, he'd have his own company by now, you know, because of the limitations and because of the stigma against undocumented workers and because of the border, really, Mm -hmm. you know, he has been put in really dangerous conditions. So in January of last year, he broke his leg. Wow. He was working on a roof, welding something for a carniceria, just like a beef shop and mm-hmm. you know, on the west side. And he fell and he broke his leg. So it was like he's an older man, he broke his leg. We don't have insurance for him because he's undocumented. So it was a really traumatic, stressful time. And me and my brother take care of my parents financially for the most part. And so it was just sort of why this poem came to be because I was I was filled with a lot of anger really Mm -hmm. about the immigrant narrative that's still happening, right? So what makes a good immigrant and what makes a bad immigrant? Well a good immigrant is somebody who works, right? Mm -hmm. And you'll hear people say, like, well who's gonna build the wall? Well Mexicans are gonna build the wall. So it's sort of a joke, you know, like well the construction workers are all Mexicans or people will say like yeah Mexicans are really hard workers you know they're they clean all the schools and it's sort of the most dignity people can give and it's so toxic because that's not the way anybody should live their lives you know Mm -hmm. we don't want our identity to be based off of work especially work that is dangerous and is killing us my a lot of I read this poem out loud and a lot of people think my dad is dead you know so because of the last line it's not to watch my father dead and so they're like how did he pass away and it's like unfortunately the way that I see it which is really sad but I've come to terms with and I'm still investigating is I feel like I've been grieving for my parents for a long time I've I've been grieving their death even though they're not dead for a really long time because I know when it happens I'm going to think about why and so my dad broke his leg and it was a really hard thing to deal with and he's still affected by those things and all I can think about is like if he weren't in this position he could have lived such a greater life and Mm. so he's not dead and there's still joy in the way we live but it's just (laughs) harder to find that joy and so this poem is about how toxic that compliment is you know how people think it's such a good thing to say that a Mexican is a really hard worker or the, mm. but it's destroying our families you know yeah. so that's what this poem is about it's about my dad and about my brothers and about my uncles who have all injured themselves to feed our families mm. and it, it really comes through and you know I, I talked about positive stereotype mm. uh, a couple of episodes ago mm. and I feel like um, it, it has that limitation right yeah. this is all you can be mm-hmm. nothing else right and and it comes through really really viscerally in your poem when I read this I wrote down casual liberalism yeah. the first line your porcelain teachers um, the first stanza mm-hmm. actually clinked their teeth together like a toast and in celebration of their tongues proud to be so kind mm-hmm. you know it's they they sort of pat themselves in, yeah. on the back maybe not consciously mm-hmm. by saying that by admitting that you know maybe they're not the ones who say oh they're criminals mm-hmm. you know um, they're saying they're acknowledging that people are coming over because they need to find a better life mm-hmm. and they're willing to work hard for that right. life but they don't allow any more than that mm-hmm. they kind of congratulate themselves on this yeah. quote unquote casual yeah, liberalism and, and to a larger degree it's like even in our policies you know like yeah. DACA mm-hmm. you know da- they were DACA and DAPA were both introduced under the Obama administration and DAPA wasn't even like thought about for a second. DACA was because, you know, these are good immigrant kids who are going to contribute to our society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then parents weren't worthy of that sort of <laughs> thought because they're throwaways, you know, like they did their job by bringing us here and now they're done. <laughs> so it's like, right. it's really unfortunate that 
this liberal mentality of thinking that you're doing a good thing by offering certain resources to certain immigrants who meet the qualifications, it's, it's really damaging, especially to mixed status families. Yeah, because just because children get their status and when they grow up, mm-hmm. if they have the right upbringing, then they can access yeah. these resources. But then there's all the years that yeah. comes before that. And if they are they can't have their family mm-hmm. around to support them, yeah. then how can they possibly right. attain the education or attain the stability, right. psychological and financial mm-hmm. stability to pursue these resources? Right. Right. There's a missing step. It's really inhumane, right? Like mm-hmm. not looking at immigrant workers as humans, total humans, and not just seeing them for their labor potential. It still isn't, it doesn't even reach the breadth of, you know, people in making policies. That mentality about Mexicans are workers or undocumented students are such hard workers because they have so much to lose, so they probably are very good students. I feel like people think it's a good thing to say and it's a good term to lead some sort of movement, but it's really, it's not as progressive as people think it is. Right, right, when we actually look at it. And then with what we're facing today, the stereotyping, this scapegoating, mm-hmm. when, when it's contrasted to that, you think of it as, oh, okay, well, you know, this is better than nothing or even, yeah. uh, or, or denigration, this is better than that. Yeah but it's how low can you go yeah. kind of a big contest going going back into the poem there's a lot of surrealism in here yeah i'm sorry i, no, I you know i kind of wish you had <laughs> kept the plug yeah. your eyes because <laughs> you start out with it's, surrealism right. and you continue with that and this beautiful like porcelain teachers you know mm-hmm. clink their teeth together and your your voice is it's rain and a silver bucket, all of these beautiful metaphors and imagery. So it's consistent with that. Yeah. And I like that the imagery and metaphors and poetry, and especially in this piece, mm-hmm. makes you think about it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't just give you everything. Yeah. I think it's because that scene of my brothers and my father eating at the dinner table, and this is a very specific scene where my family's were, my brother's family and my family were sort of joined together. Mm-hmm right after everybody migrated in the same household. So for a long time we lived together, me and my nephews and my brother and my brother's family mm-hmm. lived together out of necessity, really. Right. So I remember them coming home and eating and just it's sort of being very obvious how exhausted they were, you know? Right. So they come home dirty, sweaty, in their construction clothes, like taking their shoes off was our job, you know, as kids, you know, my nephews. So it was like this ritual that was really serious for me mm-hmm. at least because I've always been really serious I guess but I guess I had to I, I was fighting myself with myself about leaving the image as it was because it was so powerful to me or taking it that step further and who was I trying to convince right mm-hmm. about the humanity of my family so I, to sort of go on a little bit of a tangent I'm also working on this other poem where the last line is I swear they're human I swear they're human which is right. like what I feel like I'm doing with these poems is like sometimes I read to audiences and they're all white Mm. you know and I feel like I'm like I promise you that my family and my parents are people and this is why I'm telling this poem so isn't that sad that you have to say that yeah that's what it so so I kind of felt bad about it for a little while like oh that's not really is that gross you know like but it's just where we are like it's the reality of the situation and and wanting people to understand that because I'm an acceptable brown person because I went to college I'm I was born here barely born here I was born on the right side of the border and Nogales though you know so it was like I was barely born on the right side of the border I, I represent that them you know at least to me so this scene where the men in my family pluck their eyes out at the dinner table is about pain, you know? Like, yeah. what can I say to convince somebody that my brothers and my father were in pain? You know, what can I say? So that, to me, was a metaphor about how much it hurt and also how strong you have to be to not show your weakness in front of the people you're taking care of. Especially because there are men in a culture where you're supposed to be strong and you're supposed to take care of people and you're not supposed to cry. And I think the reason why I published the one for AZ Central with this line is because I knew of the audience, right, Arizona Republic, 
has a really mostly I feel white following right readers mm-hmm. who read theirs in our public are usually white you know older white people so I think subconsciously I was making a decision there because I was like this is a line that is a bit more trauma ridden you know and I yeah. feel like it's important for people who may not know what a mixed status family looks like or what a child of an immigrant sounds like this will probably affect them more than just saying that my father closed his eyes at the dinner table you know yeah yeah and I when I read this line I remember uh, thinking you know they are the pillars of the family right. and if they allow them their emotions to show mm. they're holding the family up yeah. so the family would crumble yeah. in a way in, in a figurative way yeah and and, and it's so incredibly heartbreaking mm-hmm. because we've been you know both mm-hmm. I, I, I know I've, I'm sure you have as well mm-hmm. you know since you've told me all the work <laughs> that you do um, you know to the point where you just feel like all you want to do is just cry yeah because there's you're just so exhausted yeah so tired tired yeah. exhaustion is a big part of the culture I come from you know like how tired can you get yeah <laughs> and it's applauded I mean it, this is an American culture it's not just you know immigrant labor like America teaches us that like you don't deserve joy until you push yourself at least for the working class the luxury of self-care and the luxury of emotion and the luxury of being free in that manner only happens after you've reached a certain goal and the trick is that we're never going to reach that goal because this this world is just not set up that way you know right right. so and even so I think for my father and my brothers who had families to take care of that wasn't even that wasn't the goal you know that it was purely selfless act of work you know so it was to take care of us and I mean that that comes to term that this poem's also under the breath of of sacrifice you know like how long and so to me it's like will my father die as a sacrifice and how do you free someone from that and how do you talk to someone about the fact that they deserve better you know like they deserve to people here you know my father can't retire is what I mean you know he doesn't have there's no end goal yeah there's no end goal so it's like are you really gonna work until you die like is that yeah. Is that and how do we convince someone who has? I feel like when he crossed the desert, and I have a poem about this too, about that decision to leave the house he built, the job he had, the family he had in Mexico to come here. And I wonder, and I've asked, but I still wonder, even if he didn't die at crossing the border, because a lot of people die crossing the border. Yeah. Do you still sort of die? You know, and. I have a line where I'm like, my parents, our parents are ghosts of themselves. So like. Mm-hmm they had a certain sentence that they decided on there and they crossed here and they sort of accepted that their children would be the ones to live and they would be the ones to allow that to happen, you know? Right. Well, I I don't know about your parents, but for my parents who came also, and they were also undocumented Uh and my parents also had to work very, very diligently and they basically had to forget whatever careers they had before and start over completely Mm -hmm. because again the lack of language the lack of protection the the willingness of other people sometimes people of their own culture Mm -hmm. who are willing to take advantage of their lack of status Mm -hmm. and language I wonder if for my parents if they thought about how hard their life would be you know just while they're in in that steep in that hardship if they thought because a lot of people come here to chase the American dream which has been to me it's been marketed yeah it's been mass marketed Mm -hmm. in many ways not to say that that's not attainable but it, it becomes very difficult to attain because of the fact that there's so much backlash Mm -hmm. especially now Mm -hmm. but even before even when we think we've had a good you know whatever that meant it was still never oh we need workers please come we'll treat you right it's more like we need workers okay now you're done bye it's a a history of like interpolation right like like sometimes you're here and then the next law says you can't be here it's a whiplash thing that happens when you're constantly coming back and forth from all directions in the country and where I feel like like we're always on the brink of like well when's the next time that they're gonna introduce some sort of you know, incarceration method for any type of immigrant because yeah. it's like i think in arizona i'm focused on like the mexican 
side of it, but there's so many immigrants from different cultures who have the same history. Yeah, there there are, and that's what's so relatable mm-hmm. in in what you're saying for people who's had to flee yeah. their lives, and sometimes they have no choice. There are different classes of immigrants. Mm-hmm. Many times, I feel like when there's talk of immigration, people don't talk about the different gradations mm-hmm. of immigrants. Mm-hmm. For you know, Americans, I remember reading. Something somebody writing that people who are refugees are never considered to be expats. There's a lot of status yeah. associated with mm-hmm. that word, whereas really it's the same thing because yeah. uh, you know Americans go abroad to work also because yeah. again in search of an economic yeah. betterment. Uh-huh. And I, so why is it different though when somebody else who are forced, even more forced, facing really even less of a choice, mm-hmm. come here or go elsewhere, mm-hmm. go to Europe for instance? Mm-hmm. for the African refugees mm-hmm. especially or Middle Eastern refugees how why is it that this this similarity in searching for better life mm-hmm. is not recognized you know yeah. sometimes as an immigrant myself mm-hmm. I almost feel like if you're a European descent there's some kind of at least in in the this era that we mm-hmm. live in, there's kind of a free pass. Yeah. You are free to explore. You're mm-hmm. free to do everything. You can you can be anything mm-hmm. you want, whereas the rest of us cannot. We need to get permission. Yeah. We need to we need to cons- yeah. check all these boxes. Yeah, I think conditions. there's a there's like unfortunately there's a history of inhumanity. I mean the question is so large, right? Like yeah. why are we seen as less than human? No, like right. and it's it's a history of it wars and displacement and colonization and it's not just one thing it's a history of things and and even today that's still happening you know yeah at at all borders yeah surrounding european and usa you know yeah Um, despite all the things that we know about our shared ancestry uh that we all came from africa Mm -hmm. and that our colors are just pigmentation of our bone structures (laughs) all of these things are just adaptations Mm -hmm. that human beings make in order to live according to where you know they ended up being the geographical area they ended up being. Despite that, we're still plagued by these 19th century yeah. <laughs> ideology yeah. in many ways, you know? And it's it's really frustrating. It is. It's very frustrating. <laughs> yeah, and, and people we don't we don't think about it. We don't put it in the forefront of our mind. Mm-hmm. We don't examine it. We just let it keep existing. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's sort of what I talk about a little bit in in my poem, Erosion. Mm -hmm. So I'll I'll read that now. Erosion. The ice in Antarctica is singing. The article title reads, I've heard a snippet. Sounds more like a groaning. Or the sound effects of 2001, a space odyssey. Perfect for Halloween, this prolonged make-believe that's taken over our lives with ghouls pointing to ghosts from whom they growl. We should be running. Just look at them, he warned, as if their look, like Medusa's stare, is enough for us to lose sight of whom they really are, white as sheets. From dragging their bodies across landscapes, we pay to ride on ATVs during our better days, now littered with the remnants of their possessions, things taken in a hurry to catch the last glimmer of life outside worsening destruction now scattered, discarded, and left to disintegrate like bodies of the ones who weren't ready for such a long, arduous journey. Who is ever ready? Were the residents of New Mexico Beach, with all our advanced technology and the dire steady warnings, yet the howling that accompanies this choir now groaning from a closely monitored south shouts orders for us to leave, and shoves mercilessly our migration towards safer tomorrows because we refused yesterday to acknowledge its existence. No, we had no hand in its creation. We're just here to take a short. There will always be more tomorrows, laden with overflowing cornucopias instead of oceans overflowing our beaches and consuming all our possessions now scattered to the seas, 
like those of our southern neighbors in the sea of sand, separating us from danger, except the ones we keep creating. Oh. I thought about a lot about um, edges in this poem, maybe like natural borders and the natural landscape of here. And here in your poem is not specified, so it's always everywhere, I feel. Mm -hmm. Um, a sort of a violent aggression, like the oceans overflowing our beaches instead of the oceans that are usually described as gently, you know, mm -hmm. coming, touching back and forth. And it made me really think about a violent world, an aggressive world, and who has sort of the right to exist in it, right? So lines like, shoves mercilessly our migration towards safer tomorrows or a monitored south. There's a sense of control and watching here that is sort of uneasy, right? Yeah, I, I want to talk about, um, it's about refugees, but not just refugees uh, from south of the border mm -hmm. that we keep obsessing about, mm -hmm. but climate refugees mm -hmm. as well. And when I had written that, which was in October, the president had just talked about that line mm -hmm. about just look at them. Yeah. It was his line. Yeah. And, you know, the hurricane had just happened and destroyed New Mexico Beach. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, we, we can't seem to relate to people who are crossing the border from the south and not, not just Mexicans, but mm -hmm. people who... Uh, I actually just read recently that Guatemala, the country, is very in danger because of climate change. And people are becoming refugees because they can no longer do subsistence farming. Wow. So they need to leave not only to go into bigger cities in Guatemala, but also to go north into Mexico and also into the U.S. because they have no choice. Even though nobody's putting a gun to their heads, the fact is nature mm -hmm. doesn't need a gun. Yeah. Yeah, so I did you can definitely like feel that in the poem where there's an indifference on nature's part that becomes extreme because of the lack of maybe compassion here. Yeah, lack of compassion not only now for people who are coming over, but also lack of compassion in the way that we don't care how our actions affect other people around the world. The United States is the second biggest producer of carbon dioxide in the world. The first one is China, but per capita, you know, by person, U.S. Uh, in a very populated country, um, is the first producer of carbon dioxide. So we are driving climate change in many ways and refusing to do anything to curb carbon dioxide production for the sake of putting more money in uh, right. people's pockets and, and not just not regular people's pockets, but rich people's mm -hmm. pockets on top of that. And, and, you know, with New Mexico Beach, the hurricane, we finally really saw and over the last couple of years, maybe even the last 10 years, America is finally, our country is finally seeing the effects of climate change firsthand rather than seeing refugees who are running away from climate change with whom we don't really empathize. Mm -hmm. yeah. But at the same time, we're still denigrating these refugees. Yes, I think it's... It's sort of like what we mentioned earlier, like the displacement is made up from a lot of different factors and right. climate change is just now another factor yeah. for the displacement of migrants. And the poem says sort of the shoving of this. I, when I read that, I imagined just like this huge arm just sort of like yeah. <laughs> really destroying what, it, what home means for a lot of people right. and what happens after that and what entails survival and what will happen right when the U.S. land is the saving point or the point of safety for everybody else yeah and the policies that don't support that yeah and we we need to start thinking about that climate change is happening much faster than anticipated and not just refugees from climate change but i'm hoping because we are starting to have our own in-country refugees from mm -hmm. climate change that we are able to reflect on this experience of being forced to leave to think about refugees that's coming outside the border because maybe we can relate to that experience right. of not having a choice mm -hmm. but to leave. Mm -hmm.
And here, as with elsewhere, people who has the least are always the most affected by whether or not it's political reasons or Mother Nature yeah. saying, "Well, you yeah. need to adjust." Yeah, nature doesn't have any bias or any、yeah. racist tendencies or any political agendas. So when it happens to this country in whatever way, shape, or form, and it has, I feel right.、So. Yeah. Hopefully, it isn't too late. You know, it isn't to the point where the people who need to be convinced have to see a whole country be destroyed before they decide we should have done something about it. Right, and this is why. I mean, I personally love that there's a lot more representation in D.C. after the election. Of people from different classes, not just diversity in terms of race, but in terms of economic、yeah. class. Because then, whether or not whatever color a person present, you know, in their skin, economic disadvantages will affect them、uh, more disproportionately when in preparation for political upheaval、yeah. or or climate upheaval, whatever upheaval there is. So. It's good to have this representation. For me, even whether or not that comes from the right or the left, for me, it's important to have that again intersectionality、yeah. of of representation, so that people can understand or maybe say from their own experience. Because we can't always count on the empathy、right. of those who are in government right now,、mm-hmm. which is a sad thing because、right. we elect them to、yeah. represent us, yet they don't. Yeah, I think I think the working class is sort of we're sort of hoping, right, that. The new people that were elected remember、yeah. <laughs> what it what it's like, and I think that it is there's a good chance of that, you know. And hopefully, it's just like about time and how much how long it'll take for these policies to be enacted, how long it'll take for change to happen. But yeah, it's necessary. Yeah, it's it's very necessary, and hopefully, these new refugees and with these more diversity in the representation will gather their voice together. And try to understand other people who are fleeing、mm-hmm. their countries or for a myriad、mm-hmm. of reasons. Not having a warning, even、mm-hmm. sometimes having to leave、yeah. and, and just empathize a little bit more and not say, "Oh, you, you're from across the border. You're not from this country.、Mm-hmm. Therefore, you don't deserve any better."、And、right. Just say because we are we we like I said before we market this American dream.、Yeah. You know where. Everybody is supposed to be equal,、yeah. and everybody is supposed to have these wonderful rights.、Mm-hmm. When other people from are coming from other countries,、mm-hmm. just because they're not our citizens, why can't we apply that idealism to them?、Mm-hmm. Because ultimately,、yeah. it's not about citizenship; it's about believing. Do you actually believe in these I, I,、right. uh, principles? I see a lot of like Facebook comments of people saying, "Well, why did?" You know, people from like southern South America and South Latin America, and they're like, "Why did these moms and parents do this? You know, they're at fault." Well, it's because they believed the U.S. You know, the U.S. said, <laughs> "The U.S. said we're great, we're、mm-hmm. mighty, we are fair, we are free." You know, this is who we are.、Right. These people believed us. You know, they said. Okay, well, that's where we're gonna go. If you are the savior, if you are the Christian country, you know, if you are the people who are supposed to be driven by this ideal of heart and graceness and hard work, and then that's where we're gonna go. A lot of the mothers, you know, who came with their children or sent their children, they said, "We never imagined that this is the treatment that would happen. Like we only imagined a country where." People had their arms open and accepted refugees and really accepted children above all else. Like nobody imagined that this country would do what they're doing to kids. You know, like yeah. So you're right. The U.S. sort of sold this dream, and then when people came to be a part of it, <laughs> rejected them. So yeah, it is about sort of keeping the word. You know, if this is the country that. You say you are, then it's time to start acting like that. Yeah, yeah, because we found it on these principles that people keep touting、uh-huh. and keep going back to, and they should go back to. But not only to just say something pretty or、yeah. you know sounds good, but actually do what you say, walk the walk, instead、yeah. of just talk the talk. Um, I had sort of an an idea or a question about the lines now scattered, discarded, and left to disintegrate like the bodies of the ones who weren't ready 
for such a long, arduous journey? Who is ever ready? So, like, maybe what what is what is a like what happens if refugees are able to be ready, or what happens? What makes a successful refugee, and do we even have that possibility here? Because it's it's sort of a dream. The goal is to reach the dream for a refugee, and the readiness of their journey isn't actually measured. I think here. I think once they get here, it becomes a security issue, right? Yeah. So I guess my question is, what were you imagining, right? I was just thinking about the crossing. The first part of the poem was really about people having to cross the desert mm-hmm. and how incredibly tough a person will have to be to survive that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you talked about your mm-hmm. your family, brothers, and, and your father having to have cross the desert mm-hmm. and survive that. And, and I remember reading an article pretty recently, I think it was from a couple of years ago, but I, I recently read it, which is that <clears throat> there are people who live on the borders who really hates the idea of having people crossing the border illegally, mm-hmm. refusing to put drums of water on their land, oh, right. despite knowing how many people die of dehydration mm-hmm. from crossing the desert. Yeah. And this sort of lack of basic humanity, just refusing to even try to empathize with somebody who has to cross. There are people who are uh, living on the border who have their land and they do put the drums of water to help, even if they don't like the idea of having people without papers crossing, still recognizing their humanity, the common humanity, and saying, well, I still don't want people to die of dehydration because it's a horrible death. To me, a successful refugee I mean, there are many, many steps. It's mm-hmm. almost like running a relay mm-hmm. race or, or yeah. you know, uh, where you have to jump across many obstacles. Crossing the desert is one of the initial obstacles. Mm-hmm. And then we come to your poem where you're talking about after they've succeeded in crossing this inhospitable yeah. land, what happens then? Yeah. You know, there's no guarantee. There's no protection. Yeah. They're still dying in spirit if not in body yeah you know you in the the line you say like disintegrating bodies right for this journey that you can't be ready for mm-hmm. maybe the disintegration continues even if you survive in your physical form you're still you still continue to sort of wither away even after the fact and, and it shouldn't be that way you know yeah there should be a a life after the desert and in many ways there isn't when I write about the desert or the journey of walking it is really surreal to me mostly because I didn't make the journey my brothers talk about it you know what they've done and the last time that it failed and like what you do to prepare and there really is no checkoff list you know I think about it also in like a military way. Recently I wrote a poem about the crossing of the border and like it's called Willing to Die for This Country. So it's like about my brothers crossing and about them being on the lookout for ice and for the helicopters and they have their backpacks on and they're sort of trudging along and they have rest stops. And But there really is no... They couldn't really talk to someone else and be like, well, what did you do that worked? You know, it's sort of just like you take what you can, you take as much water and you hope for the best, you know. So it's when you mention bodies in your poem, I think a lot of people don't want to accept the journey. They think about them leaving and they think about immigrants arriving here, but nobody really wants to think about the people who die. Because then you do have to accept that they were people that lived, you know? Right. My college class at ASU, my first, my last year there, this, I was, like, taking a law 101 class or something. And the, this girl in the class actually thought that immigrants drove across the border. <laughs> like, she couldn't even fathom that right. people walk. Even, if, even though the immigration is such a huge topic here, right. I don't think people really want to get into what happens when people cross the actual desert, what happens to their bodies. What ha- There's a book called The Devil's Highway, mm-hmm. and it explains how people die from heat exhaustion or from a heat stroke. Wow. And it goes into detail about what happens to their bo- physical bodies I don't think people want to talk about that because it allows them to continue to be inhumane and incompassionate if they just think about the people who make it and then be angry at those people who make it, but not think about all the people who passed away in the desert or in the oceans, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, All of these people were dying. And it was only in the last few years 
when you mention the ocean is because so many more people have been forced to leave. So many people,、mm-hmm. therefore, so many more people are dying、right. on the oceans. Yeah, that it became much more、uh, a highlighted issue, and、yeah. then people are like, "Oh, they have to do this in、yeah. order to cross." And the same with the desert. When nobody talks about it, then it's like, "Oh, they got transported." Right. You know, it's really this caravan talk as if they were actually、right. in a horse-drawn caravan.、No. You know, like. Even that's uncomfortable. Yeah, because But, it's it's easier for people to militarize the concept or to talk about it in security issues. When when Trump talks about building the wall and people are so excited about the wall and the wall and the wall, the border could exist without the wall. The wall isn't the problem. People are going to continue because they have to. It doesn't matter what you put up there. People, more people are going to die. People want to focus on these structures and these militarized concepts because it makes them feel better. About、yeah. what's happening, it makes them feel like this is a war, and you have to defend yourself. And you know, every strong country defends its citizens. But if they really looked at what's happening, it's children and it's mothers and fathers who are dying because of this. You could take away the wall; there's still going to be guns and soldiers there. You know,、mm-hmm. there's still going to be ice agents and detention centers. It, those are the real constructs. That are killing people, you know, because I think somebody yesterday, like a senator, climbed the wall to show how easy it is to climb the wall, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's not about how tall you make the wall. People are still going to cross, and more people are going to die because of this. So it's like a fear mongering thing, you know. Wall, Trump is like, if we build a big wall, people won't want to come here. Yeah, but that's not what's going to happen, you know. No, no. Talk about famous walls. Like、yeah. if we talk about the Wall of China <laughs>、right. or something like that, like. That was built for security, yeah. But if people realize those walls are built on top of mountains, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> so it's a totally different landscape. It, it's and also the wall was a dynasty's displaying、yeah. its ego. And this is what's hap- this is what's happening to this wall now. It's not actually effective. You know, it's、yeah. not actually going to keep people out. It's just representing the ego, right? It's、yeah. just a. It's a landmark. It's a a piece of steel, <laughs> like yeah. And it doesn't really make any sense to spend taxpayer money,、mm-hmm. whereas we could use that money for education.、Mm-hmm. There are so many poor citizens that do not get the right education because we we are not spending our resources on needed things. You know,、yeah. infrastructure. All of these things we could be fixing. We could be doing to better our future.、Mm-hmm. Instead of wasting it on a wall yeah, that somebody just, could just climb over, yeah, it's just an obsessive thing, an obsessive material symbol thing for toxic nationalism, and it it really is just sort of a physical barrier and like an emotional barrier to see refugees, to really look at them, because、yeah. America doesn't want to see it. You know,、yeah. they don't want to know what is actually happening, because then they'd have to base the humanity of these people. Yeah, and and we are a country made of refugees. Yeah, I mean the very the, basis is yeah. like yeah, you know, the folks they came because、yeah. they were religious refugees. <laughs>、yeah. I mean, so it's it's really insane. Yeah, it, it's really amazing that our country's history, before since its founding,、yeah. idea of, of refugees coming over and then turn around and say, okay, no、yeah. more refugees. Yeah, and it's also just a human right. Migration is a human right. I mean. Even native, even indigenous peoples have moved. Yeah, I mean, if you trace, if you trace, and you trace, and you trace, we've all moved. We all moved because we need to live. We need to eat. It gets cold here, we go here. It gets hot here, we go here. Like, and that's what you're talking about, right? Like, the climate change being one of these factors for movement, for our right to movement, for our right to migration. You can't. A wall isn't going to do anything. You're just killing people at this point. You know. Yeah, yeah. Instead of you know investing that time, energy, and money into better servicing the people, whether it's our own citizens or people who are coming over who are、uh, desperate for our help. Yeah. Why don't we live up to our principles that we keep repeating but refusing to apply? I want us to apply that. 
to acknowledge that this country is special because it's made of refugees and recognize, as you said, that humans have always migrated for the need of survival. It's not a modern phenomenon. And you have this, this wall that sounds so simple. It won't solve this complex problem. We need to all work together to solve this, not just because of the climate change threat but because of also geopolitical threats that some of which other administrations have funded, yeah. you know, wars, dictatorships, uh, because we thought for that whatever reason at that point that they were going to support American policy, but turned out in the longer term to be detrimental right. to, to us in the end, which is kind of ironic and sad <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, it's all a big, almost twisted joke. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Well, um, thank you very much thank for discussing. Thank you for talking to me about <laughs> yeah. this. I feel like I just decompressed all of the Good. things I've been thinking about. I'm just like, this is my rage and my hopes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think as artists, we express our emotions mm-hmm. through creation. Right. So it's really nice to be able to talk about it and talk about the inspirations mm-hmm. behind it. As always, you can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. In addition to poetsandmuses.com and the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week. And I look forward to bring you another episode next Sunday.